All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 140 Crow 777 Radio. Today I have with me Jason Lindgren and Phoenix Aurelius, who is a bit of a master of alchemy and more specifically spagyrics, which is alchemy of the plant kingdom. We get into a lot of things here, but at the very base of everything we're going to consider here is nature. And I have tried to impart so often on this podcast that there is no lie in nature. And for those of us who are so tired of going to a doctor and getting drugs and chemicals, going to the supermarket, trying to find something that's actually got some nature left in it, this should be an interesting episode. We might even presuppose that maybe it's possible that things like medicine are beginning to look back at the older, more natural ways. We see it here and there. Our previous guest, Dr. Lena, was a homeopath. Certainly, we can point to some chemists who are also starting to look back at the older philosophical principles. And at the base of this episode, it's about nature and that there is no lie in nature. So medicines that come from that must have something of value. Let's jump in with Jason and Phoenix. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 140. Today, we're going to be talking about alchemy and maybe mostly a little more specifically about the alchemy of the plant kingdom called spagyrics. We have done past episodes on this, but today we have with us an actual practitioner, uh, maybe even a master of spagyrics and alchemy. I'll have to let him tell me whether that's correct. Jason Lingren is with me, and our guest today will be Phoenix Aurelius. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. Hey, welcome, Phoenix. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, the pleasure is ours. I looked through all your stuff, and I was very intrigued, and I really looked forward to doing an episode here with someone who's actually got a lot of years uh, working in this area. We've endeavored to do shows, but we've never had anyone with your experience level. So, Phoenix, I sent you a login to Crow 777 Radio. When this episode 140 goes up, I'm hoping that we will see you in the comments section under the episode so that you can post all your linkage. Uh, I'm sure there will be a number of people who want to get a hold of you. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I would I would love for people to be able to do that because I'm sure that will generate a little bit of intrigue today. Right. Of all the things we cover, uh, anything that is natural or has to do with the natural of the world, I am all about promoting uh, in the age of technology and synthetic things. Anyhow, Jason, do you want to lead us in here? Absolutely. So we're going to start with a background on Phoenix Aurelius and it looks like it's quite an extensive background, so I'm not going to go on too long. Let's just hand it over to him and let him start. Cool. Well, thanks so much again, guys. It's really a pleasure to be here. As you guys said, my name is Phoenix Aurelius, and for the last like 15 years, I've been making spagyric medicines and teaching about how to do this as I've learned enough to like teach people as I go. So essentially, it started like when I was 16 years old, 15 or 16. I used to skate a lot. I dislocated my ankle three times in a 90-day period. It was absolutely just like a terrible series of decisions on my part, but uh, I couldn't skate anymore, and none of my friends were going to stop skating, so I ended up taking refuge into the woods, and when I was in the woods, herbs and leaves and plants started really reaching out to me, and I felt really bad that I didn't know their names or what they were good for or anything. And so I started learning the names of all of the trees. And then after I got all of the trees down, I started learning the names of the various plants that were there and then looking into their medicinal qualities. And I realized that I've actually have an entire pharmacy just around me in, in my local mountains. So 
this was the early days of the internet. It's still like early 2000s. And uh, I was going into the computer lab at school at the time and researching all of these plants and how to work with them and uh, started buying just like a stainless steel teapot because I read that people in the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains are still performing whiskey distillations with teapots. So I went and bought myself a little stainless steel tea kettle and some copper tubing, put myself uh, together a little distillation kit and started making uh, little stainless steel crucibles out of condiment containers and just started going out into the woods and working. And uh, I found this little document by the philosophers of nature that showed how to make a spagyric tincture. And I really had no idea what the term spagyric meant, but I just felt like, oh man, this is going to get me making tinctures. So I started doing it. Two years later, I had a friend who was an herbalist. We were comparing tinctures and she says, wow, your tinctures are so much more potent than mine. Started looking into what I was doing and came back and said, you know, that word spagyric, that actually means something. It, it traces back to the alchemical days and there's a whole extra process that's added in there that virtually no other herbalists are doing. And it has its roots in pharmaceutical medicine, or rather pharmaceutical medicine has its roots in this practice. And it just kind of blew my mind. So I had a couple of people at that point who were interested in learning what I was already doing. So I'd just take them up into the mountains with me and show them. And, you know, organically, I started noticing, wow, shit, kind of got a knack for this. and just kind of kept continuing with it. And that was like 16 years ago now. So that's pretty much my history and how I got into doing all of this. And since then, what I've been doing is taking uh, Paracelsus research. So Paracelsus was the founder of Spigeria. And uh, I've been trying to more or less validate it under the light of modern science. So realistically, it's like this. Spagyric medicine was created by Paracelsus in the 1530s. He wrote a number of books, especially uh, Das Opus Paragranum and Das Opus Paramirum are two of his main medical texts, although he was pretty prolific and has a good number of them. In those texts, he outlines an entire method of diagnosing and working with disease that radically transformed Western medicine. Up until this man, up until Paracelsus in the Western world, Everything was based on the humors and the four Aristotelian elements of fire, air, water, and earth. And these natures or these humors, which are called uh, biliary and choleric and melancholic and sanguine, and they correspond to each of those elements. And the idea was that if disease happened, it happened exclusively because of an imbalance of those elements. And so, for instance, if somebody had too much sanguine nature, then you would have to let the blood drain the blood. Now, Paracelsus came around. He said, listen, you're killing more people than what you're helping. And there's no possible way that your theory actually works because you cannot purify a quantity of blood by lessening it. And so he came up with this entire new theory called spagyric medicine that revolutionized how we looked at medicine broke away a little bit more from uh, the Aristotelian theory, still keeps elements in there, of course, but it draws very heavily on alchemical knowledge. And Paracelsus was unique amongst alchemists as well, because he advised alchemists to stop trying to transform lead into gold and to begin uh, the process of making medicines, because they knew better than other people how to open up nature and how to explore her inner secrets. 
So let, let me jump in here for a second. You used a term there where you're you're talking about opening up nature. So real quickly here, there's going to be a number of people who have made tinctures and, and other basic things uh, from what nature provides us. Many of the people that we see today are doing things like taking 100-proof vodka and other things like that to make their tinctures. Now, you use the word opening. Um, in my research into spagyrics, that is one of the main points here. You pointed out that your spagyric remedies were so much more potent than this other herbalist. Can you just briefly describe the difference between maybe what uh, an average practitioner using 100-proof vodka to make a tincture is and the difference between truly opening, purifying, recombining a plant as is in spagyric process, just so people understand there is absolutely a difference. Yeah, sure. Okay. So making an herbless tincture is basically like completing half of the spagyric process. If I had to just like put it simple and easy, because an herbalist, what they'll do it, just for a simple spagyric tincture, we're just comparing apples to apples right now because there are about 40 different methods of preparing spagyric medicine in the herbal kingdom for each plant that herbalists have absolutely no equivalent to. But if we compare an herbless tincture to a simple spagyric tincture, here's what's happening. An herbal tincture is made by taking, like you said, like 100 proof uh, or vodka, maybe even less and putting it over herbs and usually filling a mason jar or something up completely full, all the way full with a bunch of herbs, packing the herbs in there, and then letting it sit for a length of time, two weeks in a moon cycle is pretty traditional for a lot of herbalists. And then you filter it out. Now you're done. That'd be easy. That'd be so easy. But in spagyric medicine, that only captures the sulfur of the plant. The sulfur means the soul. And in spagyric philosophy, everything is comprised of a soul, a spirit, and a body. And this isn't something that is based on a belief. This is something that we can demonstrate. And what we say that we can demonstrate, we do demonstrate it. And that's really the goal of a good alchemist is to be able to demonstrate reality to his or herself completely by the merits of his or her own work with nature. That being said, the basic spagyric process looks, if we were to really follow it, looks like this. Start with a plant, stick that plant inside of water, ferment that plant. After that plant is fermented, filter out the biomass, stick the ferment inside of a distillation flask and distill out your alcohol. Once you've distilled out the alcohol, rectify it six additional times so that it gets up to 95% pure or higher. Once it's at that extremely pure rate, then go ahead and find more uh, quantity of more fresh herb, use that alcohol to tincture the fresh herb, once that fresh herb has been completely tinctured, and we do this very philosophically by filling our vessels no more than two-thirds of the way full, we usually like to do it by half because we create a special thermal uh, vacuum pressure inside of our flask that helps to create a tincturing process much more quickly and rapidly. After we do that, though, then what we need to do is filter out the biomass altogether. So that's everything that was used in the ferment and everything that was used to tincture, and we calcine it. What calcine means is that we ignite it on fire and we burn it down to an ash. And then we grind that ash exceptionally finely and keep roasting that ash at very high temperatures until the ash is pure white. And then when it's as white as it will get, then we go ahead and leach that ash with water and or a number of other solvents. And we start to crystallize pure potassium carbonate crystals from that ash. Once we have the crude mineralization, then we perform slow crystallization on it very, very slowly to perform these beautiful growth 
coherent crystals. The crystals represent the reconstructed body. The tincture portion or what came out in the tincture uh, is the soul or the actual medicinal part of the plant. And then we also have the spirit, which is the energizing or active component. And without all three of these, we're only getting a very, very small and should I say very volatile uh, medicinal essence from the plant. So the spagyric process is infinitely more involved and it provides a product that actually harnesses the tripartite intelligence of the things that are found in nature. All right. So let me see if I can sum up real briefly here. If I was going to generally describe what you just told us about, it would be basically you're taking a component of nature, say an herb, breaking it down, purifying it, and then performing the alchemical wedding or the recombination of all these things. In the process of doing this, you have done or achieved what's called opening the essence of nature that is in whatever particular herb you're working with. Is that an apt description? Yeah, I'd say that's a very apt description. And in fact, the way that we look at it in spagyrics and just in alchemical philosophy is that everything has to stay philosophical. What that means is that we're not working with crude chemical constituents of the herbs. We're using philosophical constituents of the herbs. That is to say, we're looking to extract the soul, the spirit, and the body individually. And then, like you said, to recombine them in an alchemical marriage later so that they take on a new form that is infinitely more potent than their first form, much more concentrated, and where the medicinal virtue is, has been really exalted to a very high degree. So I like that you use the word exalted there. That will show up in a lot of reading for people who take an interest in this. But um, So can we assume that everything that's being done here is derived from nature, and then in a way even though nature appears to be perfect from the human point of view, only a human being really has the ability to take this near perfection that we already witness and exalt it to a higher level of perfection. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you get a lot of the early alchemists talking about what the actual difference is between humanity and all of the rest of the creatures of this planet, and that's the capacity for stewardship. No other creature contains the capacity for understanding, stewardship, and manipulation of the environment like a human being does. And as a result, we have the responsibility to care for and to take care of nature in a very responsible way. And oftentimes what that means is noticing her processes in a much deeper way than what somebody just passing through the woods might just appreciate the beauty of the forest might. And what we do is we take a look at larger earth processes. What is happening when it rains? Well, to us, that's the process of distillation and purification. Same thing with the snow systems. The only difference is that with the snow systems, we're creating a crystallization of the water and a volatilization of the salts. And that's that's the way that we're constantly looking at nature is that nature is a flask that is centrifuging around a heat source that we call the sun. And there are thousands of different processes happening inside of this flask simultaneously, everything from microbial fermentations to distillations to calcinations, which happen with forest fires and volcanoes and so many other things. We are really just a huge alchemical planet. And when you take a look at everything under a lens, you begin to realize that not just nature, 
But human nature, animal nature, every nature, holographically and telescopically and fractally, abides by the very same processes that we utilize in our laboratories to catalyze transformation of elements in small scale. But we can utilize those very same processes to transform the psyche, to transform the world around us, our relationship with nature, so many other things. And so that's where alchemy is so important. It's derived from nature. It's nature's process. She's a master alchemist. She's the one who taught us. But we have the ability to replicate this process for the benefit of so many life forms. You know, you've hit on so many critical ideas right there. Uh, it was, in fact, many years ago when I was trying to read Paracelsus, and I'll put out for everyone listening, uh, it's not easy. You've got to read it and reread it and reread it. You've got to really concentrate. Um, it's not like reading a novel. You've got to work at it. There's a lot on offer there, but you've got to get to a level where you can receive what's on offer. But Paracelsus uh, began to talk about the idea of the alchemist flask. And that is when I realized that it was a one-to-one allegory for my observations on the moon and that we're in fact living in a closed system. Um, and your analogy of the alchemist flask is exactly how I view our world. But let's let's move on from there today. Why is spagyric practice relevant today? Um, can you start to get into that? Yeah, in fact, I'd love to. That's one of the things I'm most passionate about. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that this is going to come as any surprise to either of you guys or perhaps most of the listeners, but chemistry has kind of backed itself into a bit of a corner these days. Not entirely, but into a bit of a corner. And the reason is, is that for one, the intellectual and academic establishments have completely usurped it. And the large tech companies and industry have completely dominated the industry, making it hard for small individual business owners to become anything once they have a chemistry degree other than an employee of a larger pharmaceutical corporation or industrial tech corporation. Those things are not very appealing to the majority of people who are interested in organic chemistry and in sciences. But they end up doing those things to be able to pay off their education. And it's just it's a sad cycle. So on one hand, we see that academia just in general is backing itself into a corner by making itself so expensive, so outrageously mediocre, realistically, and only providing the training that the corporations want you to know in order to get the jobs that they are hiring for. So it's very limited and a lot of students know that and they become very disenchanted with the programs. And, you know, obviously it's no surprise that chem majors change their majors just as much as psych majors, which is the second, uh, those two change just about as equally in, in the academic field. So what I'm seeing here is that on one hand, chemistry is very lofty, very difficult. It's not very easy and it's not very fun. You can't stick something in a flask, watch the reaction, be oohed and odd, and say to yourself, what does that mean? Which is actually the entire fun of being inside of a chem lab. And Spigeria does offer this to people in such a way that we don't need royal funding like we did 400 years ago. A, a person by cost prohibition simply could not be an alchemist for most of the history of this planet because we didn't have the resources to be able to keep heat going. We didn't have the resources to be able to blow glass or to afford glass or to get the copper or to do those things. Very expensive. You had to have the patronage of kings and queens and barons and baronesses and things like that. These days, any Joe Schmo with, with even the most meager of budgets can go on to Amazon or eBay or whatever and start purchasing some synthware uh, chem glass. And once you start getting that glassware, 
you start sticking some herbs in it, start sticking some alcohol in it, maybe start distilling some alcohol, start doing some things. Suddenly you're doing organic chemistry and it's very hands-on. And with spagyria, you have now the ability with, as your skill sets rise, to make potent, very, very potent remedies for yourself to disentangle from the modern medical mess that we have today where so many people are diagnosed with disorders and simply given medications that are lifelong medications or lifelong sentences, really the way that I like to put it. And spagyrics allow modern people the opportunity really to break free from the paradigm of the disempowerment that the modern medical model really perpetuates today. So actually, I'm going to jump in again here um, to point out another thing about spagyrics. It's not just that you're utilizing nature on nature's terms and operating within the rules of nature or what nature will allow, but the whole process is kind of twofold if I want to break it down generally in this way. Anything you're doing spagyrically or alchemically is also a bit of a metaphor for working on yourself as a human being. But to take it a step further so people can understand that this goes so far beyond maybe an idea of being organic or natural or these ideas, when you're doing spagyric processes, it's locked to what we call the sky clock. Um, can you talk a little about that? And I'll preface your your response um, saying that within the forums on Crow 777 Radio, we've been challenging the Zodiac uh, under the idea that it's likely that things have been shuffled around. Um, but can you address the overall taking of what's below here on Earth and timing it to the actual true cycles of time? Sure, yeah. So, you know, just like the ancients have noted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, really, that everything on this planet abides by star cycles or what we might call the sky clock. And Ptolemaic astrology, Ptolemy was kind of a numpty. He was really brilliant, but in order to make things more accessible for everyone, he completely ignored the procession of the equinoxes, and he wrote about it. We know that he completely, deliberately omitted it to make things easier for people. Uh, he omitted so many things, and then that became the basis of Western astrology since the time of Ptolemy. So what we have is for a couple of hundred years after Ptolemy, even up to a thousand years after Ptolemy, the planets were still more or less in place and the approximation of where things were absolutely right with the constellations. But as time progressed, what ended up happening is that we see that the constellations got separated by the calculations included in the Zodiac. And that's all accounted for by the procession of equinoxes. It's not difficult mathematics. The Chaldeans, the Syrians, the Egyptians, everybody knew about this, even though they only included eight planets at that time. They still knew about the procession of the equinox and were, were able to calculate much more precisely. Same with the Mayans and everything. Starting with Ptolemy and the Greeks, we start to see major discrepancies and errors. So lead us up to today, it's damn near a month off. People think that they're like, oh, I'm a Taurus. I start running their chart. I'm like, nah, you're actually an Aries. And if they think that you know they're in, in uh, Scorpio or something, when I check them, oftentimes it's like, hmm, I don't think so. I think you're actually in Virgo. Because Virgo is a huge sign. Libra is a small sign by virtue of the actual constellations themselves and the size in the sky. Now, what is true, what is absolutely true, and Paracelsus talked about this, Rudolf Steiner talked about this, Maria Tun of, or Tun of the uh, biodynamic calendar talks about this. You have to use sidereal positions of the sky, meaning that if you are standing at any geolocation and looking at the night sky or just the sky in general, even though you can't see the stars during the day, they're there, 
if there's a planet up in the sky and a constellation behind it, then that constellation actually is the zodiac that that planet is in. So if I'm looking up at the sky and the moon is right in front of me and behind that is the constellation of Leo, that means the moon is in Leo. It's that simple to the ancient mind. So let me jump in here, and I, I apologize. I just want to clarify for people. I'm going to set aside all the work that we've done uh, on Libra in the forums at Crow Triple Seven Radio, and I'm going to point out that you have pretty much landed where we have. And basically what you're communicating to people is that the Zodiac is not hokum. It's how we place the sun as a basis for overall time. Uh, a year is based on the sun, these ideas. But what you're pointing correct. out, if I'm correct here, is where we have landed, that to heck with all these ideas of precession or ignoring precession or any of these things, the sky clock works like the sky clock works. So when you look up, what you physically perceive is what you run with. Is that close to where you're at? That's 100% where I'm at, brother. Let me take this just one step further. So, you know, we had all this kind of hippie programming in the early 60s where they informed us all that this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius and all these things. And there are endless people in the world who pay attention to the sky clock who claim we're in the age of Aquarius. When in fact, when you look at where the sun is in what constellation at the vernal or spring equinox, you will see we're still pretty firmly in Pisces, um, just to make a point. And these are not hippy-dippy, nonsense, astrological ideas. This is the sky clock marking the only way we have to mark time here. I just wanted to get all that out, Phoenix, so that the haters who want to act like these things don't matter can be put in check. Well, you know what they say, haters going to hate. And uh, that ain't no big deal. Realistically, like, you know, I can present facts and reason and history and calculations. And I can even show years of my tropical charts that I was doing in, in my laboratory and how I would have discrepancies. And then I can show you how I switched to sidereal astrology, Vedic style sidereal astrology, and how that was about 85 to 87% correct. But I still had a couple of discrepancies. And then once I found mastering the zodiac, Zodiac.com and started working with Athen and started learning a little bit more about the International Astronomical Union and their data and the way that we can actually calculate geocentric positions, the way that modern scientific astronomers do. We find out that there actually is no discrepancy between modern astronomy and actual true to form astrology. No discrepancy whatsoever. And this, I've adopted your term here, Crow, is the sky clock. And that is really what's important. If you think that a planet is in a constellation or a zodiac, rather, that is completely separate or distanced from where the stars actually are, I'm afraid you are living in an imaginary universe in your head. That's as simple as that. So we should probably jump in here. You used the word sidereal a few times. So let's just lay out uh, what that means to you as we move forward, because most people don't pay too much attention to the sky clock. The sky clock is the only time we keep down here in this world. The equinoxes and the solstice, we've done a lot of work to show equinoxes are misdescribed here, totally dependent on where the viewer exists at the time. But to get back to it, almost all Western time is based on the sun. A year is based on the sun. Even months at this point are kind of based on the sun, although, of course, the word month comes from month and was more accurately divided by the moon. But when we're talking about sidereal time, 
we could define that as maybe ignoring things like the sun and paying attention to a star. So maybe a sidereal year, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I haven't looked at this in a while, is if you marked the position of a star and waited a whole year for it to come back around, that would be sidereal time. Is that correct? Yes, that's the, that's the relative sidereal time for each planet. Now, really, the sidereal just means with respect to the distant stars, not necessarily the sun or the planets, but to the distant stars. Right. Okay? So what we're doing is we're taking the stars and noticing their precession in the sky and the way they work. And that's actually much more important to us. So I'll jump in one more time here. Just for the record, I've said a lot of times, I don't accept the precession of the equinoxes as it's described. To me, it's just how the sky clock functions. And there was really never a need to have an idea like precession of the equinoxes. And in some ways, the idea of what some people accept the precession to be has actually made their observations incorrect. I mean, do you agree with all that? To a large degree, yeah, I do, because like uh, the majority of people who are performing astrology or even using a sidereal astrology calculator, most of them, especially Vedic astrology, which is more correct, much more correct than tropical astrology. But with that being said, the error is, is that almost all of the zodiac, if not all of the zodiac or the constellations are 30 equal degrees. Right. That's absurd. That, that doesn't actually happen. Some constellations are much larger than others. And so, yeah, what you're saying about it being obsolete is to some degree true if you just want to live a very primitive lifestyle. If you want to plan, if you want to know what the weather is going to be next year to plan ahead for the crops, if you want to plan five years ahead to know whether you should migrate or not, if you uh, want to start making things in the laboratory and finding ideal dates, you have to cast sometimes 22 years or more in the future in order to find the ideal date to begin a very particular procedure based on the energetics that you're looking to capture and harness. So you do need to have those calculations if you want to be more advanced than just a very primitive crude society. That's where they started doing that, I think, in the ancient past was, you know, let's evolve. Right. Point taken. My main point being um, that this is uh, the, this idea of how the slippage is explained. Um, I don't accept any of it. It's just how the sky clock works. And calculation wise, uh, I fully accept. But Jason, uh, kind of geeking out here. Do you want to pull us back to a to a center thread? Phoenix, I'd like to know if you think it's intentional that there's a generalization of the 30 degrees per sign so that it does throw people off, that they're not able to get very specific about what it is they want to do. Well, you know, I have definitely considered this a great deal. I don't know how much of it is actual conspiracy by elite and how much isn't, but I can tell you that when we switch from a Julian calendar to a Gregorian calendar, that was a deliberate sign to help confuse people as to what their actual astronom astronomical relationships are and to avoid pagans from actually performing on high holy days, true astronomical sky clock high holy days. So the Gregorian calendar that we're still using is completely messed up. It has nothing to do whatsoever with astronomical cycles. The Julian calendar, however, did. In fact, the Julian calendar was based on the Egyptian calendar, which itself was an astronomical calendar, primarily charting the relationship between the sun and the moon in order to calculate a full year, not too different from the Mayans, the Chinese, and others. So, you know, for me, I think, yeah, the, the quick answer is yes. Uh, there's a major overgeneralization. Well, it seems that certain official organizations still use the Julian calendar as opposed to the Gregorian. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, the Hebrew calendar is just as precise. And, you know, there's a lot of them that are still lunar-based calendars, Chinese being the most famous, I think, and most widely used today. But they're just much more important and much more connected to what is actually happening in the cosmos. Now, a lot of people don't really understand astral energy at all. I mean, if it if it doesn't like actually have physical substance, it's hard to relate what is happening. Alchemists acknowledge that there are no fewer than four different dimensions with leak spaces or bleed space between those dimensions that act by the rules of both and therefore can be like dimensions themselves. For instance, the difference between the astral plane and the physical plane has the bleed over space of the etheric. And these are basically the way that now Paracelsus actually created the term astral. I'm not drawing on some sort of new age hippy dippy belief here. I'm actually saying that astral energy derives from the Latin word astra, which means star. And we know, just like Carl Sagan tells us, we are all star stuff, right? <laughs> so quite literally, as these things are exploding and we're, we are the accumulation of thousands of extant stars that have died and recoagulated in center points based on either dark matter and mass or whatever else, but that creates a new star. And then that star explodes and it forms gravity and it brings in planets and other matter and so on and so forth. And all of this organic matter is from the stars. It is star stuff. The astral energy is the imprint of collective memory that has retained throughout all forms of that star stuff since eons and eons and eons ago. It's the same thing as you're breathing Caesar's last breath, but on a cosmic level. This is how the universe is one. This is universal spirit in alchemical terms. All right. Well, let me jump in here and shift gears a little bit because I would love to get your perspective on this. So we're in spagyrics or the alchemy of the plant world. We're centered on what nature provides and we're working within the rules of what nature allows. Not only that, we're bringing to bear the human ability to take a, a seemingly perfect thing and exalt it to a higher level. I've stated a lot of times on this show uh, that the sun in the morning is not the sun at noon or the sun in the evening. I've stated a lot of times that there is a reason why a tulip blooms at one time of the year and a sunflower another, and I've allegorized that out to people. In other words, the time of year a human being is born differentiates that human being from other human beings that were born in a different time of year in a specific way. When we see modern medicine giving out its chemical drugs, um, it doesn't matter who you are, when you were born, any of these things. This drug is carte blanche, what's going to be given to anyone with this described malady. Can you describe a little bit how spagyrics really steps up to recognize the unique humanity that it's being prescribed to, uh, including how the sky clock would relate it to this or that part of the body, if I ask that in, in a correct manner? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So here it is. Uh, and now we're starting to get into my research that I've been doing, especially heavily since 2015, is recapitulating medical astrology and seeing how correct it is under the light of modern scrutiny, uh, scrutiny and scientific perjury, I guess, you know, look, seeing if it really stands up. What I've noted is this, is that every person's Saturn sign and their Mars sign will definitely tell me almost everything there is to know about what that person's going to have by way of pains, by way of joint things, by way of 
life uh, endeavors and hard times and so many other things on a medical perspective. Like within 30 seconds of looking at a chart, I can tell you what you're probably susceptible to as a kid, what you are probably dealing with now or what you're likely to start dealing with before long. So given all of that, Spigeria, what it does is it starts to take all of that into account and it says, why are these imbalances here? And what herbs can we have that have an opposite planetary effect, a balancing planetary effect, that are going to be able to neutralize this astral force that is leading this person towards this particular type of health? Like some people, for instance, with things in Taurus, for instance, if they're born and their sun sign or sometimes even their moon sign is within the first couple of degrees of Taurus, I can expect that they're going to have lower jaw problems probably need to have their tonsils out, things like that, especially if Mars is a planet that's impacting that. So what we would do is we would take an herb that has a balancing effect to the negative position of that herb. We would give it to the person and both the astral effect and the chemical effect of that plant actually provide nourishment to prevent or eliminate what that cause is. That's traditionally the way that spagyrics were performed. So I've, I've got to ask you point blank, what's been your experience? Is this an effective method of addressing issues like this? Well, let me put it like this. After 15 years of seeing people of having chronic debilitating spinal conditions and all these other things, clients will come to me and in three weeks no longer have those conditions. That's not true in every case. I mean, it doesn't always just take three weeks. Every person is completely unique. But I see the three-week to two-month time frame over and over and over and over because the body is naturally trying to get to a state of homeostasis anyway. It's just lacking the astral capacity, which is training the morphic field to do things aside from what the healthy response ideally should be. And as soon as you provide what the morphic field does not naturally have, it balances everything out and it instructs all of the matter in the body to work properly. And I'm pretty certain that's what we're working with is Rupert Sheldrake's work here with morphogenetic fields. So Phoenix, getting back to your write-ups here, I am kind of curious as far as the concept of Rockefeller medicine versus natural medicine. It's something we went uh, a little bit into with Dr. Lena. And it sounds like that you've already experienced a lot of success with the way you're doing things, like you were just describing with a three-week period. So is there a plain and simple way you could explain to folks that there is a very big difference between what you're doing and allopathic medicine? Well, yeah. I mean, for, for one, I'm doing some really experimental things because that's, that's the majority of my work is actual research. I'm trying to show people and do case studies and provide research clients to show people in the modern world, hey, listen, I had this person with this for this many years. They came to see me for this. Here was what we did. And here was the success rate. So that being said, the first thing that I do is I utilize a radionics device known as the SE5 1000 Gold Custom. And this allows me to custom program my own data searches for radionics sweeps to search the morphogenetic field. So the first thing that I do when a client comes to me is I scan everything that you can think of over thousands and like hundreds of thousands of points of data of every possible thing that could go wrong with a person. I try and include all of it. Now, if that person tells me, oh, hey, I have this symptom, then I already start to look into the root causes of that, the possible root causes of that symptom and focus on that more than other things. But 
if somebody just came to me and said, hey, what's wrong with me? I would be able to tell them more or less exactly what's going on based on the numbers that I see uh, as a result of this analysis. So that's the first thing. And then once I find that analysis, I find out what the planetary vibration is. And then all of my spagyrics are analyzed with the same technology. And we are able to cross compare through using, um, it's not really a supercomputer or a quantum computer, but it performs quantum calculations for us. So we just call it the quantum. And what I'm able to do is take hundreds of data points of things that I analyze each of my spagyric remedies for, and I cross compare that to the various symptoms that that person is having that were detected in my system. And then we apply those spagyrics and then we see some very vast results. So first of all, I make everything myself with my own hand. That's going to be a huge difference between the allopathic industry. Second thing is I harvest everything with my own hand, be it an animal part, a mineral part, herbal part. I harvest it with my own hand, process it with my own hand, only using natural ingredients and solvents that I also can make with my own hands. So like I can make acetone, for instance, by performing a destructive distillation of various minerals and metals like sodium, but I don't always need to use acetone. And when I do, I'm able to use a very high grade alchemical quality acetone that does not have chemical stabilizers or other things, right? So my polar and non-polar solvent use is entirely different than what you might see in a chem lab or allopathic pharmaceutical lab. I'm also like pretty much everything comes by way of tinctures to you. So the way that most allopathic medicines come to you as a pill, mine's going to come to you as a liquid tincture. And the reason is that I need it to penetrate and get into the bloodstream as fast as possible to have as quick acting effect as it possibly can. And that happens through a sublingual application of a very high alcohol content tincture. And so no matter what the grade of medicine is that I make that has sulfur, mercury, and salt in it, I always put it back into a vegetable solvent, namely organic cane spirits. So the other thing is 100% of everything that I do is organic, biodynamic, or wildcrafted. And so there's absolutely no chance for petroleum contaminations or other things. I'm also using a series of microbes known as alchemazine that I've created that break down crude oil and aflatoxins and a number of other things. So I'm pretty certain that I can guarantee that I have probably the cleanest spagyric products in the world because of the strictness of the testing that I'm constantly doing to ensure that the source product all the way to the end product is absolutely fantastic. And then, like I said, we just perform research and let the system decide what to do for us and then just dish out the spagyrics and the system tells us what dosage and application rates and everything. And our research clients just do that and we see how things go and track the progress. So I guess I've got to ask here, I'm a person living in the modern age and I don't believe I've ever seen an advertisement for a allopathic drug a chemical drug that didn't have side effects that are quite often worse than the very thing they're trying to treat. Are there side effects with spagyric tinctures to any degree? Uh-huh. Yeah, there absolutely are in that you will probably become more spiritually open and awake. You'll probably end up quitting your day job <laughs> and li- living a, a life of more awareness because we're not just dealing with the physical constituents of physical healing here. So often, the remedies that we're giving people are actually to open up the astral pathways, which they have restricted through repressed emotions of ACEs, adverse child experiences, early traumas, things like this. And that is what's restricting almost all of their health capacity about 90% of the time. So modern doctors say, 
oh yeah, there's a psychosomatic link between disease and and the mind, but they don't ever address it. They're not even looking for it. What alchemy has been doing, or spagyria has been doing since it was founded in the 1530s, is living that and applying that to such a huge degree that people usually end up having large cathartic life experiences that accompany their physical wellness. Now, we seem to have a problem with the turn of the 20th century and the Rockefellers taking over everything with medicine and steering it completely in the allopathic direction because of their petroleum empire. Would you say that the, as far as you know, that they deliberately stamped out the kind of thing that you're doing? Well, see, yes, yes, absolutely. And it wasn't just the Rockefellers. We got to understand just a small amount of chemical history. Spagyric medicine, after the time of Paracelsus, because he revolutionized Western medicine, told Greek medicine that it was completely defunct and burned the books of Galen and Avicenna in a public university in front of his students, got chased out of town, ultimately died due to uh, blunt head trauma. Somebody bashed his head in from behind. So after he died, he gained a lot of popularity because of his students. And then all of the best physicians in England and France became what are called Paracelsian physicians. And this was written about by Debus, D-E-B-U-S, a uh, chemical historian. So anybody who wants to read more about this, because uh, it's very fascinating history, can do so. Now, alchemists, including Paracelsus, have always had like this very religious type slant. And the reason for why many of our projects work the way that they do, and truly the inspiration for even the processes, how they developed the processes, came from Christian scriptures initially because the church had such a stronghold over things. Now, Paracelsus says that the church must be wrong in its policies because in his laboratory, the way that the scriptures read would not provide the proper process, but instead he was able to rewrite the process and say this must be actually how the Christ worked and this and that and the other. And so he was looked at as a religious revolutionary in the same way as Martin Luther uh, opposing the Catholic Church, but he didn't like Martin Luther, Luther either, really. To let Luther speak for himself and let me speak for myself. So when he created the system of medicine, he was healing syphilis, leprosy, plague, other things that we still are looking at today and scratching our heads. For 150 years after Paracelsus died, this was the most popular form and the most desired form of all medicine because he invented laudanum, for instance. You know, like major pain-killing medication. And if you had the flu, a single pill of laudanum would stop you from dying. Most people died because of dehydration from the flu. That's the number one mortality rate besides uh, child mortality in infancy. So Paracelsus was able to put a huge stop on all these things. 150 years later, though, there entered the chemical revolution. People like Baptiste and von Helmont and and others, uh, Robert Boyle and others, are starting to advocate. Lavoisier, you know, discovers oxygen, realizes that air isn't just one element, but composed of multiple things. And what we begin to see there is that people want science. And they want a distance from their science, from religion. All of spagyric medicine was based very heavily in various forms of non-dogmatic alchemical prattle around Christian ideas, you know, like Judeo-Christian ideas, actually. And so the scientists said, hey, listen, we don't care about its merits. It can't be standardized. We can't work with this in any way, shape, or form that is truly scientific. And as a result, Spagyria virtually overnight went by the wayside. 
Ironically, though, our Puritan founders of America actually were alchemists and brought spagyrics to America, as written about very heavily by Mark Stavish. A lot of the early colonies relied on spagyria because we didn't want to pay taxes to the crown for the medicines that were being brought over from the English chemists. So here in America, we actually have a very deep root of alchemy penetrating very deep, even though we found it with the Christian tradition and then ultimately with the Freemasons and Rosicrucians that preserved it in the 19th century until today, where we have the Internet and it has reached out to everybody and it's just completely widely accessible. All right. So while we're still firmly in the first hour, Phoenix, I'd like you to announce to everyone where they can contact you, how they can find your work. Uh, I personally went through, I don't know, at least six of your videos. Very impressive. Uh, your greenhouse, your lab setups. Can you please just give us a quick rundown to be sure it gets into hour one? Yeah, sure. So I teach a large number of things for those who are interested. I teach what's called alchemicology, which teaches how to restore ecology using alchemical principles. I teach transpersonal alchemy, which teaches people how to apply transpersonal uh, psychology, alchemical principles to transpersonal psychology to overcome traumas and adverse experiences and to literally become empowered in their lives. I teach alchemic culture, which teaches alchemical principles of gardening and how to utilize that for beyond organic and sustainable agriculture. And then I also teach laboratory spagyria, specifically what I call spagyric artistry, because I'm not just going to teach you how to make simple spagyric medicines. I'm going to teach you how to become an artist so that you can use the wide world around you and isolate the various conscious intelligences and healing intelligences that you want from the various plants that you harvest. So it gives you a much broader scope than what like traditional spagyric programs or other things would teach you. How do they find you, Phoenix? Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is to get to my website at phoenixaurelius.org. That's P-H-O-E-N-I-X-A-U-R org, and uh, just leave a, a message in the contact, sign up for my newsletter. I've always got uh, tons of things on my website, new things going, retreats down to the Amazon, tons of things that we're doing all the time. So just go ahead and stay tuned realistically. Well, also, I noticed that there are a ton of spagyric products that are on offer there for people to go look. But go ahead, Jason. Let's get one more on the record. Um, Phoenix, please respond rather quickly. We have to keep under an hour for other radio stations. Uh, the one thing I was curious about is that I understand you're starting to adopt the word sky clock as opposed to astrology, which I really like, of course. But what was your reasoning behind that? Well, because it distances from astrology, and even when I use the term sidereal astrology, which is technically accurate for what I'm doing, it doesn't distinguish how I'm using it enough because I'm using true International Astronomical Union data. I really am like a lone salmon swimming upstream in a very wide river of trout swimming downstream. And so I've got just a ton of opposition. And I think the sky clock is the very best term that just really embodies the heart of what is actually happening because it's true to form astronomy. You can look at it. It's just like a clock. Well, I'll tell you what, I kind of employ an alchemy of my own where I often apply my intent to be fortunate enough to be able to offer a thing that is said in a certain way that allows minds to consider it. And that was the thinking behind Sky Clock. But anyhow, that does pretty much bring the first hour of episode 140 to a close. Phoenix Aurelius is going to be a member over at Crow 777 Radio. 
and he will be in the comments section below this episode where I am hoping he will link any number of videos and websites uh, that he provided to me prior to us doing this episode. Jason, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? I was trying to get at the conspiracy angle of this a little bit just for people to really understand that there's so much more than just allopathic medicine out there that can be used to help you and that someone like Phoenix can do so much more to help you in multiple ways, just like Dr. Lena can, than just, say, throwing a drug at a symptom like allopathic medicine does. Right. How many times on this uh, on this podcast have we pointed out that plants are the carriers of life essence? How many times have we pointed out that people like Charlotte Gerson and her father, Max, who was killed, uh, have a proven clinical track record of curing cancers, many kinds of diseases, by simply recognizing the truth that plants carry life essence. But when we get into spagyrics, we're going a few steps beyond just that acceptable, provable observation. Anyhow, that does bring the first hour of episode 140 to a close. We hope to see you all over at crow777radio.com, which is a free speech zone, which will have forced us to push much of this conversation over into hour two. There it is. Hope to see you there. Cheers.